Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. Take it away, AZ. Uh, And take it away, I will. This is our Werewolves of London show. And we are going to be talking all things Wimbledon, and we're very excited. Uh, as mentioned at the top, we're joined by the great Matt Spielander, two-time All-American at the University of Texas, Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden, and we are joined by one of the greats of all time. He is the one and only Yvonne Lendl. Yvonne, thanks so much for being with us. It's, it's great to see you. It's great to talk to you. Even though these are very strange times in tennis, thanks for joining us. No, that's my pleasure to be with you guys. So, Yvonne, speaking of the state of tennis, right now we are in flux. There is a little bit of tennis being played in the United States as we speak. We've got this All-American Cup, but Wimbledon was canceled. The French was moved. The U.S. Open theoretically is going to be played. Are you confident with those that are making the big decisions in professional tennis right now that they're getting this thing right, or do you feel like there's some things that could be done differently? Oh, that, that's a rough question because uh, I'm not close enough to it to uh, to be saying I think they're doing it right or no, I don't think they're doing it right. I don't have all that information. I don't have any information other than what I see uh, every now and then on the internet and I'm not really seeking much, so so I really don't know. Ivan, what do you think about playing? Uh, should they have it? Because there's not going to be anyone uh, in the stands. I mean, is it, should tennis go on, pro tennis, just like the golf is going on? Well, I have, uh, I, have much, I have watched some tennis on TV. And in Europe, there are people in the stands. And I'm not going to mention Novak's tournament. But I watched a few minutes out of Czech Republic yesterday. And they, they had people in the stands. And, uh, and everything seems fine. And uh, then I have watched some uh, football or soccer in, in Europe. And I watched some Bundesliga and I've watched some English Premier League. And uh, it, it's quite interesting, actually, because they play sounds and uh, they, uh, they uh, make it sound like the crowd is there. So if you don't see the empty stands, you don't know. And I was watching Schalke and uh, Bayern Munich and every time Neuer touched the ball, everybody was booing and so on. Uh, it was quite interesting. And uh, uh, should, should it be played or not? Uh, the, the, Again, I do not have the information. I do not know how long this is going to last. Uh, if, if it's going to be short term, maybe we could wait until we get spectators in. But if it's a long term, we may have to get used to it. I, I don't know what the future holds. Yvonne, I'd like to ask you a question since we are recording during what would have been the championships Wimbledon. When you look back on your career there, uh, a couple of finals appearances, um, you have made the statement, and I'll steal this from Johnny. He heard you talking to Murphy Jensen that you're actually quite proud of your Wimbledon record, uh, and as well you should be. Uh, when you went into those two finals, whether it was against an 18-year-old Boris Becker or Pat Cash, were you as supremely confident going into those finals as you normally would be in a match of that magnitude? Or because of the grass and the, and the surface at the time, did you feel a little bit more apprehensive about going in there that day? Uh, anytime, anytime you get to the finals of a major, you're playing quite well. So you, you, have, you have six matches behind you, which you won. Uh, you do have confidence from that. So you're confident that if you play well, 
you're uh, you're going to be okay. But uh, so is the other player. Unfortunately, only one guy can win. I'm going to ask you a quick question relating to the grass. I'm curious how you feel. I mean, when you played those finals, you know, you were playing great, great grass court players, great offensive players. The courts were very fast and slick, and the advantage was to the serve and volley guys. The grass today is a lot different. It's it's not as fast. It's it's you know you can play from the baseline. Do you ever wonder, you know, gosh, I wish the grass was like it was today and and uh, when you played because it might have been more advantageous to you? Well, I, I think you're making a good point, Johnny. But uh, no, I never wonder about that. But uh, I understand your point, and uh, and I have heard people say, well, if uh, the grass was the same as today, that uh, Ivan would have won uh, once, twice, three times. But uh, we will never know. That's true. But we guys, uh, I'm not sure you guys know that, but but um, this is the 40th anniversary of the Bjorn Borg John McEnroe finals in 1980. Uh, to a lot of people. Uh, considered uh, one of the best matches of all time. So, Ivan, I mean, you didn't come that much after Borg, nor did I. When you see what Bjorn did, how do you explain that? He won four years. He won the French and Wimbledon the same year. I mean, what kind of uh, performance did that? First of all, Mats, I, I, I don't know if you realize how old I am, but I did play Bjorn quite a few times. I know that, but it was very difficult for you and me to, to figure that out after the French to go right. and play on the grass with only two weeks. And then he goes ahead and he wins four of them the same year as he won the French. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't say anything, but it's absolutely amazing. Right. And as you correctly pointed out, those days... It was also only two weeks in between uh, the French and Wimbledon. Now it's three weeks. And I always felt that I needed extra week, that one extra week. I was going into the championships uh, many times and I couldn't beat my coach yet. And if you look at my results, uh, I was uh, struggling the first week with uh, players I should have been beating easily. And 6-4 in the fifth and tough four sets against... uh, and all, they're all good players, as you know, but still they're not the same caliber as, uh, as the top guys. And I did struggle big time. And uh, I, I'm convinced still today, even though I can't prove it, and Tony will never, my coach Tony Roach will never admit to it, uh, I think he was paying guys in practice to let me win some sets. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to ask you a, a quick question here, guys, uh, because I think, Ivan, when you said yes to coaching Andy Murray. I think there's a lot of people uh, that went, what on earth, Ivan is going to now come out and coach? So first of all, uh, when are you going to become Sir Ivan Landau? Because you have to <laughs> Wimbledon to save that country. But I think that uh, suddenly you say yes to coaching Andy Murray. What were your feelings about? Why would you want to do that? And not, I know you can help him, but why did you have that? Was this a good timing in your life? Well, it was a lot of factors. Uh, it was quite interesting because I got a call from Darren Cahill and he said, Andy Murray is looking for a coach and we have some names. Would you meet with us and uh, tell us what you think about these people? I said, sure. So we met up. We had a nice dinner for three, three and a half hours. Danny Valverde was there as well. And uh, we talked about how I see his game and uh, what I 
believe how he should play the top three guys, which were uh, really giving him trouble because he was beating everybody else and so on. And, and uh, we said goodbye and uh, went on, right? Yeah. About a week later, I get another call from Darren and I say, hey, would you be interested in the job? I go, uh, wait a second, that's a different thing. We need to sit down and meet again. <laughs> so so we, we sat down and now I was asking more questions than Andy because I think it's really important that um, the coach feels he can help the person, that he, from very little, how very little he knows him, that he likes the person because otherwise you can't do a good job and so on and so on. And uh, that's how it came around. And uh, I said, you know, Tony Roach has done a great job with me and, uh, and I can always rely on him. And I did. I did uh, speak to Tony quite a bit. I consulted with him and, uh, before I took the job. And then if I had a couple of issues, uh, I asked him, what would you do? I used a lot of uh, what I learned from him as well. And um, it, it was quite fun. Yvonne, let me ask you a quick question on, on the current players of today. You know, Nadal, the top three, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. How would you have fared against them? I mean, if you put your game up against them, how would, what, what would you think of that, uh, those matchups? Well, Johnny, uh, I get asked a lot how I would do against uh, today's players. And I say, look, I played 30 years ago. Uh, let's look at times in swimming and track and field and performances and try to compare those. You just can't. Right. None of us would be able to stand up against those guys right now. However, I will say this, that if we were any champion, we'll always learn and adjust how to be successful. And if uh, we were born today uh, or playing today, we would win our share of matches, fair share, but we would have to also have the same opportunities as these guys have with training, knowledge of training, uh, whether it's nutrition, whether it's conditioning, uh, whether it's uh, medicine. And I mean in a good way, not in a bad way uh, in terms of doping. But uh, with all of that, we would all find a way to be successful because you, you only can fight with the weapons you're given. And we, we didn't have nearly as many weapons as these guys have today in terms of help from around and knowledge. Clearly, Yvonne, you had uh, enough weaponry between the years to help Andy Murray get to where he got, you know, to win a handful of majors. And now a guy that's got everybody scratching their heads, who's incredibly talented as Nick Kyrgios, if you had an opportunity to spend time and maybe help uh, straighten that situation out, what might you tell him or would that even be something that you'd want to take on? Uh, I don't know, Nick. Uh, he practiced with, uh, with us once and uh, uh, extremely talented, but I don't know him at all. He played actually Andy, one Wimbledon, I believe it was in 2016, in the round of 16. And the first set uh, was the best tennis I have ever seen. The two guys played an amazing set. I think Andy had one or two unforced errors. Kyrgios had about 88 or 89% of first serves in, and they're not just powder puffs. And Andy won that set. Then Kyrgios went away in the second set, came somewhat fighting in the third. And um, I know Kyrgios got criticized for that match that he didn't sustain the level, but there were not too many people in the world who could sustain that level because 
it may have been the best set of tennis I have seen. Ivan, where, where do you think we, we obviously are watching uh, the, the best generation in tennis, they say, with Roger, Rafa, and Novak. Uh, but the next generation behind them is going to be better than these guys because this generation now is better than we were. And the next player is going to be better. First of all, do you see that in the Tsitsipas and Denis Shapovalo uh, in that generation? Do you see that? And what is it that they can be better at? Better than Roger, Rafa, and Nova? Is it serving? Is it movement? I mean, can you really get better than this? Yes, you can get better. There is no doubt about it. You can... Uh... You you will see what happens in 10 years. I'm, I'm not sold on this generation coming up yet or coming up there, there. They're 22, 25 years old. Um, the younger generation right now we're talking about hasn't beaten them. Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's very, very... I don't know if I want to use the word disappointing. Let's say strange. Okay. Should they have won at least one major among them? Probably, but it's difficult. And uh, in my opinion, there are few, few uh, reasons for that. One of them is that playing three out of five sets is very different than playing two out of three sets. They have won one thousands over them, beating two of them sometimes and so on, but they have not done it in the majors. And my theory, and I don't know if Mats agrees, it will be interesting to hear what Mats says on this. My theory is that it takes a certain number of four and five set matches to learn how to play those matches. So let's say that number is 20. Okay? Well, where do today's guys get it? We were able to get that experience much quicker. Now they really have just majors. And in the majors, let's say you make semifinals so you play six matches but four of them were straight sets so you have only two well you need 18 more if my number is correct to learn how to do that and it's very very difficult for them to get that experience what do you think Mats? yeah i agree because people obviously always think that three out of five should favor the younger guy uh the guy that's physically stronger um, and yeah, maybe physically you need to be a little bit stronger, but it's more about understanding that you can't be at your best for three sets in a row or for the whole five setter. And when do you, when do you give, not give points away, but when do you push a little harder? When do you let go? Roger Federer in five sets, he's 40 years old and it's an advantage to him to play five sets. Yeah, but he's different species in that. Huh? His movement is so economical that uh, he doesn't yeah. get... I have very, very seldom I have seen Roger tired in the fifth set. No, never. He listens to his body, it seems. Yeah. But he, here's, a, he, here's another statistic. In September 2018, Chilich and Del Potro turned 30 years old. Okay? Once they turned 30 years old... There was not one player under 30 which has won a set in a Grand Slam Finals. I, I will repeat, not one player under 30 which has won a set in a Grand Slam Finals. That's crazy. Uh, Ivan, I want to ask you because obviously um, I moved to Greenwich, Connecticut 
Uh, and a lot has to do with the fact that you were living there. And uh, we practiced a couple of times in Grand Cure and I, not many. Uh, I always felt like in my practice session, I think the reason I became a pretty decent player is I was able to get a lot out of my practice sessions. For you, what were the things you were trying to do in practice? Were you trying to gain confidence by beating up on your opponents? Or were you trying to do some different things tactically? Or, and I'm talking about when you played points in practice. It, it would depend, Mats. Um, to me, there are two different practices. And I would uh, do that with uh, my players as a coach as well. There is a practice when it's during the tournament. So basically, the day of the match is just a warm-up, maybe touch up a few things you know you're going to give or suggest to the player as a strategy. If I'm going to say, hey, Andy, you need to hit the backhand slice down the line, I would be a lousy coach if I don't do that in the warm-up or practice before the match, right? And then on the day off, you just do maintenance and start preparing for the next opponent again. But then there are also practices which uh, now these days they're called training blocks. And in those, I would do different things. Uh, many times I just did drills, uh, even for a week or 10 days at a time because I didn't have sometimes anybody good enough to play points again. But I also would be working on improving my game. So I know Tony wanted me to work on my second serve. I know Tony wanted me to uh, work on the backhand slice. I know Tony wanted me to be a little more aggressive. So, so uh, if, if things like that, if I played a set with someone, I would try to do that. Of course, there is that competitive part of me which said, no matter who I play in practice, I don't want to lose. And if I'm losing, doing the new thing, I'm going to back off and start doing the thing I know I do better. But, uh, but I hated losing even in practice. I still do. So, Yvonne, before we let you go, you're standing in front of 20 sets of parents of young American tennis players. From what you've seen from American tennis over the past decade or two, what would be your advice to them as far as their role with their kids and the development of their tennis? In general, it's one thing, but every player is different. And what one player needs, maybe the other player has, and so on and so on. But in general, I would say, make sure the kids have fun. Make sure the kids have good fundamentals. And make sure when they're over your head with the knowledge, of your knowledge, you turn them over to somebody who can take them further. So you don't, you deserve a lot of credit as parents for getting them to the sport, giving them a start, making it possible for them. But at some point, instead of pushing them forward, you become a drag and make sure you, you recognize when that is and let somebody more up to it with more experience take care of your kids. Yvonne, thank you so much for joining us on kickserveradio.com. Mats, thank you so much for arranging it with your good friend, Yvonne Lendl, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. But in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and, uh, and again, we really appreciate your time tonight. I really enjoyed it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Yvonne. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Werewolves of London, Matt Svelander, Johnny Levine, myself. We want to thank the great Yvonne Lendl for spending some time with us on this particular show. And, Matt, I'll go to you. Yvonne had a good career at Wimbledon by a lot of people's standards. I know that people that are historians of the sport would probably say, well, he must be disappointed that he didn't win a Wimbledon. You walk in the same shoes he does. It's the only major neither of you won. Uh, talk about how you view his career at Wimbledon. And shoot, while we're at it, what about your own? Well, I view his career as brilliant at Wimbledon, uh, obviously making two finals. Uh, he transformed uh, you know, his uh, willingness to go to Wimbledon and serve in volley and try and play it the correct way, the only way we knew how to play on grass in those days. Uh, so, obviously, his career at Wimbledon is brilliant. He's just missing out on a victory. Uh, my career at Wimbledon is, is no good at all. Uh, made, I think, three quarterfinals. Uh, but I'm okay because I won a couple of times in Australia on grass and uh, I beat Ivan in one of the finals. Um, I beat Johnny McEnroe uh, one year in the quarters of the set. I feel like I, I knew how to play on grass. Um, I just needed more time and I think Ivan would, would agree with that if you gave us three or four weeks to get ready uh, we could have been all right at Wimbledon but when you're coming from a, a clay court season where you're making the weekend in pretty much every tournament and making the weekend what seven times at, uh, at Roland Garros uh, counting the semis it's not easy to uh, to just change the game from Oh, it's serve and volley. Serve and volley, as Patrick Rafter told me once, that the difference between serve and volley is today and back then is today he feels that serve and volley today sometimes is just put the serve in play and run to the net or go for an ace. Whereas his way of serving and volley was very clever. He'll serve, a kick serve sort of high to the forehand, the weakness, get ready for a certain return and then volley into whichever side of the court. But he was literally thinking about serving volume the same way us baseliners think about constructing a point. So, Johnny, I want to ask you, because you made a good point. You know, it's funny. Matt's is over here. I had a terrible career at Wimbledon. He made three-quarter finals. Well, you played that tournament a couple of times, too. And you asked Yvonne Lendl the question that if the grass were a little different, now, you know, when he played as compared to now – would he have won a Wimbledon or two? And you were quite certain that he would have. I'm going to pose the same question to you. If the grass were the same when you were trying to qualify and get into a main draw based on the results that you were having on a hard court or maybe even on clay, how do you feel like you might have fared under those circumstances? Well, you know what? I, I actually think I would have liked it faster. Andy, I had a pretty good return. It was one of my strengths. And, uh, I picked up the ball well off the grass. I think with the baseliners, I, I think I would have struggled more. I, I just felt that my return with the big servers 
I had an advantage. I was going to be able to break more. Um, so I would have preferred the faster grass. I, you know, I had a pretty good run once in the qualies there. I lost to Olchowski, who ended up getting the fourth round. I was up a set and a break in the second round of the qualies. Um, he had a great run there. But, you know, Yvonne had um, – uh, there's no question. I mean, the grass, he he struggled. I mean, the guys that he was playing at the time, that was their surface. And so I think he did an amazing job to get to the point that he did, making two finals and doing as well as he did. Everyone thought, well, you know, his career might not have been complete because he didn't have the Wimbledon. But I will say to Matt, you're thinking that you did bad at Wimbledon three-quarter finals. That's – I would have taken one of those, Andy, don't you think? I'll take it right now. <laughs> Without a doubt. And, and and going back to Matt's, you know, let's not discount a Wimbledon doubles title with Joachim Nystrom. We've made mention of it a couple of times on the show. What was it about your doubles game that translated successfully onto the grass courts at Wimbledon and being on center court for a final, Matt's, be it a doubles final was that a special moment in your career, just being the fact that those were the hollowed grounds and this is a Wimbledon final, even though it's not a singles final? Yeah, you know, Wimbledon in doubles, uh, obviously, is three out of five sets uh, on the men's side from the first round. So in those days, it was very difficult to find good uh, practice courts on grass in London. Wimbledon's courts were so much better than anything else. So for us, it was great practice to play doubles. It was great fun because you didn't need a big serve. You needed a consistent first serve in play. Uh, you needed to have good first volleys, but you didn't need to cover the net that great, not like in singles. Uh, and uh, me and my partner, Joachim Newstrom, we were best friends. Uh, so the conversations and the changeovers had very little to do with our opponents. Uh, they had very much to do with people in the stands. Um, so the, the, the atmosphere was so relaxed. And really, we were not trying to win anything. We were just trying to, to have fun, maybe gain some confidence in terms of serving and volleying. But we were as shocked as everybody else. But, you know, I think Wimbledon, it's so special, I think, for everybody to not be there this year for me. And as a player, I think the difference with Wimbledon is you go in there as a player, you know that you can get a rough draw and you can be out of there. I think more players have lost early in Wimbledon out of the great, great, great champions. More, more players they have lost early in Wimbledon because every day, every match at Wimbledon is, is a lot more special than the other majors. Just like Ivan said, I don't think it was as easy to get on a roll on the grass, even for the great players, uh, great grass court players. So you didn't build up a whole lot of confidence. Uh, it was serving and volleying, uh, a break here and there, and you could lose the match, you go home. So I think that's the mystique and, uh, and uh, why the atmosphere is so great at Wimbledon. I miss it uh, horribly. And I, I don't have champion seats. I just miss it. <laughs> they hardly let me in. No, no, we know that's not true. Johnny, speaking of being on a run at Wimbledon, before we check out for this particular segment, we went to school at the same school. We didn't go to school with Kevin Curran, but as as we are, he is a Longhorn alumni, and we saw him get on a serious run. We're talking about the Werewolves of London. Well, there was a couple of years there where Curran certainly qualified as that. And I'm speaking of 1985 when he takes out John McEnroe in the quarterfinals and straight sets, takes out Jimmy Connors. 
uh, in straight sets in the semifinals. Hits a slew of aces against both of these guys. I know that you and I are thinking going into that final against a 17-year-old Boris Becker in 1985 that our Texas Longhorn alumni base is going to have a Wimbledon title come Sunday. Then all of a sudden, here we go. This kid does it again. How shocked were you to see Boris beat Kevin after what Kevin had done against McEnroe and Connors back-to-back? Yeah, that was that was quite a thing to, you know, Kevin getting to the finals was was crazy and uh his serve was massive. Uh he was serving incredibly well, um tons of aces. And then Becker was just on a roll. I mean, it was like he was destined to win that title. I I don't really know. I never talked to Kevin about how he felt going into the match. Um, you know, nerves maybe. Obviously nerves being in the Wimbledon final, but you know, playing a 17-year-old, maybe he thought that you know, he, he should have, you know, he was going to win the match and the nerves got, got, got heavy for him. I mean, I think Mass could probably talk to that knowing, you know, having been in finals of majors and stuff, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a shame. He, he couldn't get the victory, but, but wow, you know, making the finals and, and um, you know, he did get a U.S. open title and I think he didn't, he make the finals of the Australian as well. Andy, I'm well, not- he played Matt's actually. And, and in oh, fact, oh, that's, that's what right. that was going to be my segue was, all right, well, speak to it, Matt. You stood on the other side of the net from this guy. What did you see from Curran in a final of a major that maybe led you to believe he was he was ripe for the taking, maybe something similar to what Boris saw that day? Well, I actually saw Kevin before Boris saw him. Right. Kevin okay. and I played in the finals of, of, I believe it was 1984. Um, you know, it's a really interesting uh, topic, I think, because um, you're talking about nerves there, Johnny. Uh, I had zero nerves in my first Grand Slam final uh, about playing the finals. The only thing I was nervous about was I might not win a game against Guillermo Vilas. Boris Becker in that final, zero nerves at all. And you would think that experience would help. No, experience hurts uh, in that situation. Um, somebody who is not as driven. Boris Becker at 17 were, was way more driven than Kevin Curran, who was more rounded well-rounded so I guess the deeper question is if you do go to university or college and you turn pro at 21 22 what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages I think the disadvantage is that you get uh, dulled down a little bit in your attitude because when you're 18 18 you're not a very nice kid but you hate losing tennis matches more than anything else in the world and when you've gone to college uh, with the likes of you two clowns, I think you sort of dull it down a little bit. And, and, and uh, the academics is as important as your tennis and, you know, all that. And I'm like, what, are you crazy? So I think for a, a pro, I think it's great to go to college. I think you can hone your game. You can work really hard. You can get a good team spirit going. But if you're a seriously good junior and you are beating up on pretty much everyone in your region, country, continent i don't know if it's right to go to college i mean i hate saying that but i think there could have been a chance they could have dumbed somebody down in their attitude if you give them four more years of school that's what i saw with boris becker all right when we come back we are going to talk about the werewolves of london we talked a little bit about uh what johnny and certainly what matt's did there Obviously, a little bit about what Kevin Curran did, and we want to thank, again, Yvonne Lendl for joining us earlier in the show. Back with more of the Werewolves of London as we record during a time 
commonly referred to as the Championships Wimbledon. Don't go away. Much more right after this. Welcome back. Final segment, kickserveradio.com. The great Mats Vilander, two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden. This is the Werewolves of London. We are recording during what would have been uh, the Championships Wimbledon, and we are talking all Wimbledon all day long today. And, Mats, I'm going to turn to you and say, you know, we've had an amazing run over the past three, four decades of people who have really become comfortable on the grass. I mean, you think about Martina Navratilova winning nine times. You think about your countryman Bjorn Borg uh, improbably winning five times in a row. Of course, then along comes a guy named Pete Sampras. Uh, you had the, the Edberg-Becker rivalry, which had those guys playing several finals in a row. And then, of course, Roger Federer. When you look back at some of the great champions what was it that they had in common that made them so dominant and be able to sustain that dominance for such long periods of time? Well, um, to start off, I suppose, on a, a slightly rude note or funny note, they were all horrible clay court players. Okay, that's the <laughs> that first would do it. one that is not horrible. He was the best of all time on clay, apart from Rafa Nadal, but I would even have Rafa question that because Borg when he was at his best he just quit so early um I think that the werewolves of London came about uh that there are so many guys in Wimbledon that are good grass court players and they were shocking from the baseline and they didn't have enough matches on clay and you get to Wimbledon as a clay court specialist and you've done well and then you get this really great draw on paper because you've seen this guy uh and he hasn't won a match in, in a month in Monte Carlo or Madrid or whatever. And then suddenly you see him at Wimbledon and like, oh, he's dangerous because you, yourself, you're so much worse on grass compared to the other surfaces. I think what they have in common, the guys that did well, is they were able to be themselves. Even though walking on the Wimbledon Center Court is literally like walking through the International Tennis Hall of Fame. You have trophies, uh, you have gold-plated cabinets with pictures, and uh, it's very, very hard to not get um, carried away with what Wimbledon stands for. And I was always so impressed with the guys that come out there and, and just be yourself. I'm like, how do I be myself? I got to bow to the royal family before I play. How am I going to go out there and be myself? So that's what I think they all had in common. They turned it into their place, their court, and they never, um, they never gave in to the history that Wimbledon is. Johnny, when you look at some of the great Americans who really had an opportunity, obviously we saw Pete win it. Obviously, we saw Andre win it uh, in, in, you know, in, in semi-recent years. Um, were you surprised not to see Andy Roddick get one, or is it just one of those situations where kind of like it was unfortunate that you're never going to win the French if you were born anywhere near the time that Rafael Nadal was born, that you're not going to win a Wimbledon if you were born anywhere near the time that Roger Federer was born? Yeah, I think his timing – you know, when, when he was playing the tour, it was unfortunate that he had to go up against Federer at Wimbledon. I mean, he did have that one final that he had on his hands, and he, and, he, and he didn't quite close the deal. 
Um, and I think that's, that's got to be his toughest loss of his career. Um, I would like to note a couple of Americans that, that kind of came out of nowhere to do really great at Wimbledon. You know, do you remember Paul Chamberlain? Mats, do you remember Chamberlain? Yeah, sure. Out of nowhere, quarterfinalist, uh, guys from San Diego, really didn't have, uh, uh, you know, much of a career other than getting to that quarter of, of Wimbledon. It got him to top 50 in the world. And then in 1984, Paul Anacombe was was number one in the country in college. I was number two. That was the year I ended up losing to Pern Fours in the semis. But Paul came out of, you know, turned pro that 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 summer like I did. And Paul ended up getting to the quarters of Wimbledon. So those were two in, incredible results for young Americans that that uh, I felt worth noting uh, during Wimbledon right now. Yeah, And I have to say, guys, that there's another one that is very current, which is Dennis Kudla. Um, I, I know Dennis a little bit. I spent some time up at the uh, Junior Tennis Champion Center in College Park. And Dennis had an unbelievable Wimbledon. Uh, grass seems to be his surface. So, so a grass court specialist. I'm not really sure what it is. Uh, is it movement? Because moving on grass, like you know, Johnny, it's very difficult to feel safe. Do you slide? Do you try not to slide? We see Federer. He doesn't slide ever. We see Djokovic, he slides as much as he does on clay. So what makes you a grass court specialist? I sometimes wonder if it's not more about movement than anything else. I was a good mover, but I felt uncomfortable uh, on grass because half of it's green and half of it's dirt. So when am I going to fall and hit my head sort of thing? Mats, let me ask you a question with regard to what makes you great on grass and maybe this was something to do with why Yvonne maybe wasn't quite able to to get over the top. Was it the ability to accommodate a ball when you're slightly off balance because of how many weird bounces the ball takes on that grass and to be able to be at the very last specific moment before contact, have that ability to adjust? I think you're, hit the nail on the head Andy I think the reason Borg uh did so well it was because he was so quick I mean he's the quickest tennis player that I've ever seen he's quicker than than Roger and Rafa Novak he's not as flexible and smooth but quickness was there Roger Federer I mean let's face it he can hit come up with a shot at any time and I don't think a bad bounce doesn't really uh, disturb him as much because he's so quick in his hand, in his feet, and in his mind to come up with a creative shot under uh, time rest- uh, restraint. So I, I agree with you, Andy. I think today Wimbledon champions on the men's side come from guys that can handle bad bounces, low bounces, balls that skid through, they kick up. And you just have to be able to sort of be a goalkeeper and get the ball back in play. Helps to have a good serve, but I think Roger Federer is the absolute perfect uh, grassroot player of modern day because of the hands. Johnny, I want to pose something to you here because the guy that comes to mind, and Yvonne didn't want to use the term disappointment with regard to this generation of players not being able to get over and have better success against the big three. But based on what Matt's just described, doesn't it seem to you like Jack Sock would have been a perfect guy to have been able to have a good run? Now, he's had it in the doubles, but based on his hands and based on his forehand and his ability to move and to be 
uh, creative with his shot making uh, that had he been a little bit stronger between the years, this might've been America's chance to, to maybe have a guy go out there and steal one on the grass. Yeah. I mean, I think he plays pretty similar to, you know, to Roddick. Roddick had a lot of success on grass. You know, that serve was enormous. Sock serve is, is huge. Um, I think, you know, Sock struggles a little bit with confidence, obviously, you know, last couple of years, it's been really poor. Um, the doubles has been been great. He's got great hands. I, you know, I, I just think it it never he never really uh, got going at Wimbledon and got on a run to 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 get him late in the rounds. There, um, it is a bit surprising. He, he's that huge forehand. I'd like to know what you know. Why do you think, Mats? Why do you think he hasn't uh, done as well as as we would think on grass? I think I want to go back to what um, Yvonne uh, said. Uh, just a little while ago, about playing five sets. Um, I think playing three out of five sets, that's where, that's where it lies, uh, I think. you got to be able to, to win, you know, fight through bad times, good times, go with the good times and momentum is with you, lose the momentum, come back. So I think that on the regular tour, when you're as talented as somebody like Jack Sock or Nick Curios, I think you can get on a roll and the match could be over in sort of an hour and 10 minutes. And that's a seven, six, seven, five match. Uh, and in, in a three out of five sets, of course you could be up two sets to love uh, in the same time, but it's still, you have to win another set. So I think the mindset going into a three out of five set match is not as um, positive because you know that getting on a roll for three straight sets is very, very difficult, whereas on tour, they can blow anyone away in an hour and 10 minutes, even the best players in the world, somebody like Nick Curies and has. So uh, I think it's maybe more three out of five sets than anything that these uh, guys have a hard time with. Thanks for listening, guys. We are KickServeRadio.com on Tennis Channel Podcast Network. More with Matt, Johnny, and AZ right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Vlander now owns Gravity Tennis and Fitness. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, Lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MatsVlanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Okay, guys, before we check out tonight on the Werewolves of London, we we have a tendency to do this, and that's we talk a lot about men's tennis. But let's 
talk about the women's game. And before we check out, let's each come up with the one women's match of all time that when you think about Wimbledon, you think about this match, this women's match, just head and shoulders above the rest. And Johnny, you and I talked a little bit about this earlier, but I'm going to start with you because you had a really good one. Novotna Graf, Wimbledon final. What year was that? 97, Uh, I believe. Well, I mean, that was just a classic. uh, I mean, I just felt so bad for Novotna. I think she was up 4-1 in the third. Uh, serving a point to go up 5-1 and and basically just it, it's just a match that I remember so vividly I mean Graf was so dominant in women's tennis and Nevada had this chance to get her I think it would have been her first slam Wimbledon title and and just just collapsed um you know at the at the ceremony um I think she was crying in the queen on the on the queen's shoulder there and it was a, a site that uh, I think really, um, you know, a lot of people that watched that, you know, really felt for her. And it was really, really a tough loss. And then she came back later um, and got to the finals again, lost to Hingis, but then finally won the title. Um, I beat, I think she beat a French gal. So Natalie tells you out. That's right. So that that particular match stands out to me as just a memorable women's final. I know there's been, been so many great ones, but but that one just comes to mind. And, and uh, you know, that that's the late uh, Yana Novotna. I'll go, Matt, and I'll give you the final word. Uh, I do want to give a, an honorable mention to two girls that I grew up with that both had great results at Wimbledon, which were Zena Garrison, who made it to the 94 final and lost to Martina Navratilova and Lori McNeil, who actually beat Steffi Groff one year at Wimbledon and had a great run herself. And they were both great serving volley players. Uh, as fate would have it, they translated well onto the grass. But it was the Venus Williams-Lindsay Davenport final. And I, gosh, I don't remember the year Davenport had the match, but Venus just would not let that one get away. And I believe it went to... I want to say 7-5 in the third, but it was just really high-level tennis between those two. Uh, and I'll never forget just the drama and the theater and uh, and obviously Venus's incredible reaction upon winning that match. Obviously, we had plenty of Serena finals, and but Venus versus Davenport, when I think of a Wimbledon final, that's the one that, that stands out. Yeah. Guys, I, I don't even um... – remember find that way because I wasn't uh, there for many Wimbledon finals. I've never been uh, and I lost in Wimbledon so I would go but to me Wimbledon is Coco Goff last year. Wow. That was absolutely magic to see a young girl on the center court uh, in two matches and come out with slice forehands and and massaging the ball on the grass, which for a 15 year old, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have that knowledge. Uh, and nor should you do it, even if you figure it out in your mind. So I think Coco Goff, the, the vibe uh, and the Mia in England uh, uh, during those few days when Coco was winning, she beat Venus Williams in the first, of course, and then she went ahead and ahead and won a couple more. He was like, uh, something, somebody had been born like a Bjorn Borg back in the 80s. It was magic. Uh, she was I, for sure the biggest star, the most well-known person in, in Great Britain for about three days. Uh, and uh, it was just unbelievable. So I really, really hope Coco Goff uh, keeps blossoming. I think she'd be huge for the game. And I think more importantly, she is absolutely huge in Wimbledon. And she 
gave so many people uh, hope and enjoyment with her matches. So for me, Wimbledon on the women's side, I'll tell you, Coco Golf last year was magic. Matt, is Coco Golf going to be number one in the world? That's the question. I don't think we want to ask her, nor do we want to discuss it. Because again, okay. I think the only reason why she's not going to necessarily be one, but I think one of the reasons why she could uh, be stopped in her development would be the outside uh, pressure of either whatever, coach, agent, parents, journalists like me and you, Andy. So if she can keep, um, keep her ears locked up and not listening to us, I think she could be the best player in the world. She certainly is going to get to a level that's going to be very difficult for other players to, um, to reach. Thank you so much for listening tonight, everybody, to the Werewolves of London edition of KickServeRadio.com. You've been listening to former world number one, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Matt Svilander, Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American, former top 100 player, Johnny Levine. I'm just little old teaching pro, Andy Zoden. I'm the director of tennis at Columbine Country Club. Thanks for joining us. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and very proud of that. Have a great holiday season and a great summer. Stay safe, stay healthy, and until we get together again, just enjoy your tennis when you can get out there and play. Well, I saw Lon Chaney walking with the queen Doing the werewolves of London I saw Lon Chaney Jr. walking with the queen Doing the werewolves of London a werewolf drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's. His hair was perfect.